Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, everyone, thanks for coming along to the Griffith Asia Institute seminar series. My name is Luis Cabrera. I think most of you know me. I'm the co-convener of the series. And today we are very pleased to welcome one of GAI's own, Larry Crump, Professor Larry Crump, who will be speaking to us on Global Summit Pre-Negotiation, the case of the G20 Australian Presidency. Larry Crump has examined complex negotiations for over 25 years by studying international organizations such as the G20, the WTO, European Union, Mercosur, and others. The research program has contributed to the development of theory focused on negotiation closure and deadlocks, turning points, linkage strategy, framing and reframing, and the analysis and management of complex negotiations. Uh, besides serving on the editorial board of several academic journals, he's got a best paper feather in his cap from the Fifth International Biennial on Negotiation in Paris, and for a book from the International Association for Conflict Management, he's got the Outstanding Book Award for his book, Multi-Party Negotiation with Lawrence Suskind. In addition to his academic appointment at Griffith University, he's been appointed as professor at Kunghee University in Korea and as a senior fellow at the Center for Global Cooperation Research in Germany. Thanks so much for the introduction, and thank you very much, all of you, for coming. I know you've got busy schedules, and it's kind of you take some time and uh, spend it with the G20 and myself. Before I get into my paper, which is, of course, as titled Global Summit and Pre-Negotiations, the case of the G20 Australian Presidency, uh, I want to talk a, li a little bit about how I got into studying the G20. Uh, I guess it began when our Vice Chancellor figured out that the G20 was actually going to meet right across the street from the South Bank campus. And that produced a lot of excitement, and uh, Russell Trude at the time, I think, was a consultant, and so he brought Russell Trude in as a consultant to organize the Griffith G20 Task Force. And because of my prior experience uh, studying international organizations, I was kind of roped into that amongst what really was a bunch of economists. I'm a social scientist. A lot of things that came out of that task group, honestly. There were seminars and workshops, and we really engaged the, um, the local community in, our, in demonstrating the expertise that we had. I did not have any at the time on the G20, and so rather than, than claim to participate in some sort of workshop or seminar, I didn't know what I would talk about. Uh, it's a pity I didn't have this paper then. I said, well, I'll do a study. And the study that I proposed, it was a, a three-page concept paper, you know, a page of the concept, a page of methodology, and a page of references. It said, I'll do a study similar to what I'm going to present today. So that was kind of like the first phase of my project, uh, really. I, st I studied the G20 in three different phases, so that was the first one. I can remember my introduction to the G20 was sitting on a very long train ride in Japan and I read every single communique that the, the G20 Leaders Summit had produced. And by that, at that point in time, I think it was Los Cabos, Mexico. And so I read them in chronological order from beginning to end, starting with the 2008 Washington, D.C. one and continued through, I think it was six or seven. And so that was insightful. I learned some things about that. And then the second period occurred when my colleague, Christian Downey, who used to work for the federal government in the climate change section, and then I think with a new government appearing, he got shifted out of climate change into the G20. He, the, there was in the prime minister's office a G20 task force, which, which gathered together about 40 federal employees, and he was included in part of it. So he wrote me. We'd done some work together and published on climate change, and he wrote me and said, I've got a new, a new position in the federal government, and I said, great. I said, 
here's my uh, three-page concept. I doubt I'll ever do anything with it. Run with it if you want it. And so we had a, a nice little chat about the G20. We exchanged emails for a while, and that was, uh, that was fun. And that led into, um, well, after he finished with the G20 task force, he took up a postdoc position at the University of New South Wales, where he is still today. And uh, about two months later, he emailed me and he said, why don't you and I go to Canberra and, inter and interview all of my former colleagues? Like, you couldn't find the names of those people. They are so buried into the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Department of Treasury, and, and um, a couple of other places. And he knew them all. They were his colleagues. He set up the appointments. Uh, I showed up. He asked his questions. I asked my questions. And so suddenly we have 18 interviews. So that's where the data comes from. But I didn't have time to write it up until I got ASP. And part of my justification for getting ASP this year was I, I had data to write up. And this is one of the projects. And when I arrived in Germany, I appointed as a senior fellow at the Center for Global Cooperation Research, which is along the Rhine River in Duisburg. I, um, I found great enthusiasm. The paper was not yet completed, but they wanted to see it done because Germany is going to be the, the chair of the G20 in 2017. They, they are scheduled to have the Leaders' Summit in Hamburg next July. And, oh, they made a big deal of it. I, I, um, they held a public lecture. They called it a public lecture. That's where the first time I presented this paper um, in Bonn. Uh, at the German Development Institute, which is a think tank for the Ministry of Economy and, and Development, which is like the AusAid of Germany, but much larger. And there were 50 people that showed up for my public lecture. I don't know, maybe they came for dinner afterwards, but anyway, I was quite flattered. I think if I presented this paper in 2013, I might have standing room only. You know, it's kind of like... We did the G20, and now the interest has kind of subsided. But for the Germans, it's right front and center, and they're really excited about it. And so, so that's kind of how I um, I got into to this particular project. It's kind of it's serendipitous, sort of just you never really planned the way things are going to turn out. In terms of the actual study, my research questions are really focused on what are the factors that support an effective leader summit. And we're talking about summits. It's not only global organizations that hold summits, but regional associations will also host leader summits. And one of our assumptions that my colleague and I had is that perhaps the role of the chair, the role of the president, plays an instrumental ro role in, um, in determining the effectiveness of a leader summit. We defined effectiveness as setting goals and the ability to achieve those goals. So in addition, along the way, as we reviewed the uh, policy literature and the academic literature on the G20, we also found that actually the Australian experience in, in uh, being the, the chair of the G20 allowed us to look at some issues around G20 identity and, and legitimacy, which are both concerns. And, and we were able to respond to some of the issues raised in the academic and policy literature. So in terms of my study, well, I start off, of course, with a literature review. We look at the literature on the summit chair, uh, the role of the summit chair, um, leadership, power, things of that sort. We look at agenda building, uh, the agenda that is established long before a leader emerges, and then, of course, the agenda that, uh, that the leader wants to include, the things the leader wants to include in the agenda. We looked at pre-negotiation preparation, and most of the literature on pre-negotiation preparation really is about 
bringing combatants to the table, so bringing Israel and, and uh, Palestine to the table. How, that's where the literature is. There's a small literature that talks about pre-negotiation in institutionalized regimes. And they're cyclic processes. It's like a planning process. And so really what this paper is about is like planning. It's, a, it's, a, it's an analysis of planning. One of the things the literature lacks is a framework for, for understanding how a, a summit leader should go about the task of defining their role. And so that's one of the things we wanted to do. So in terms of the overview, so we, I begin by talking about the background and purpose of the G20. The challenges is found in the literature, transparency, accountability, representational legitimacy, and identity. What should the G20 be or do? Then we look at the G20 case, the Australian presidency, and I focus specifically on, on agenda building. How do they go about building a two-day agenda? And then I conclude by looking at the relationship between summit identity and, and IO identity, the summit agenda and IO identity. We look at the summit pre-negotiation framework, and then we got some recommendations for the G20 uh, based on all of that. So that's kind of where we're headed. So that right there, in terms of background, that's the language that started the G20. Right after the 1997 Asian financial crisis, there was a G7 finance ministers and bank governors statement, September 1999, Clause 19, and it says that in the framework of the Bretton Woods institutional system, we want to bring together systemically significant economies to promote cooperation to achieve stable and sustainable world growth. And so for the first seven or eight years of the G20, nobody paid much attention to these 20 nations that were meeting because it wasn't the leaders. It was the trade ministers and bank governors that were meeting. The very first meeting was held in Berlin in December 1999, trade, trade ministers and bank governors, and it was chaired by Canada. And um, in terms of criteria for that first set of meetings from 1999 to the present, they continued to meet. It was really undefined, except that the members required a systemically significant economy to contribute to global economic stability. That was one criteria that clearly stated in, in the clause, 19. The other one is they sought to have a, a regional a balance, is what they, they thought they sought. So in terms of G20 operations, clear back from the beginning, before the leaders' summit, um, began to emerge in, in 2008, and then continuing onward. It's an informal international organization. G20 declarations and communiques carry no legal obligation. It operates without a charter, international treaty, or permanent secretariat. It has an annual rotating, rotating chair, and the president then assumes the secretariat function. The G20 management trioka is the past president, the immediate president, and the incoming president. So in the case of Australia, when we were the president, we had Turkey on one side and we had Russia on the other side. Russia had been the past, Turkey was, was coming on, and we were the immediate president. So that was our trioka during that period. The finance ministers and the bank governors worked in relative obscurity until 2008. And then starting, I don't know if you have, what your views are on George W. Bush Jr., but I think that... Um, Maybe one, this is what his great accomplishment. If you believe in the G20, if you think it's a, it makes a contribution to global order, uh, I think this is probably an, one of the important things that he actually did, amongst a, a whole bunch of other things that didn't turn out as well. So he had advisors. I'm sure that wasn't his idea. He had advisors that recommended it. So here you're taking this group of 20 bank governors and trade ministers that have been meeting for seven or eight years, and you say, let's invite the leaders. 
And so the first meeting was held in November 2008 in Washington, D.C., and I'm not going to read through that entire list, but you can see there's a list of every single meeting <clears throat> next month in China. Uh, there'll be the uh, 11th, the 11th um, G20 Leader Summit. Next year, July 2017, it'll be in Hamburg, and the reports are that in 2018 it's going to be somewhere in Argentina. Argentina will be up next. And so there we sit there in, as the ninth meeting in November 2014. So there you go. Take a look at it. There they are. <clears throat> if you count the, the people I have, there are actually not 20 people seated. There are 21 people seated. And how is that? It's called the... G20, and there's 21 people seated. Well, the way that works is the Europeans being the Europeans couldn't choose one person. They chose the president of the, the European Union Council and the president of the European Commission. So on, on the right-hand side, you've got uh, 10 people, and on the left-hand side, you have 11 people. So the, the Europeans have lots of seats, surprisingly, and I'll just take a look at that. Take a look at all the seats that the Europeans have. And curiously enough, Spain shows up for every single meeting as well, though Spain is not seated there because they're not considered to be a permanent member, but Spain shows up all the time. I don't know. It's interesting. It's a curiosity. It, as the story goes, Nigeria was supposed to be included on the list of G20. And then at the last minute, the people that selected, Paul Martin, who was the Canadian Minister of Finance and considered by many to be the father of the G20, and Lawrence Summers, who had just become the U.S. Treasury Secretary, the two of them sat down and made a list of the 20 members, clear back in 1999 when they were looking at bringing together finance ministers and bank governors. So they had added Nigeria, as the story goes, and then at the last minute they said, no, we better have the European Union represented, and so they took Nigeria out and put the European Union in. Um, the, the Nigeria has just, in, in, started in 2014, be, become the largest economy in Africa, overtaking uh, South Africa. And if you take a look at the, the map, well, you can see that... Um, well, North America is pretty well represented with Mexico, the United States, and Canada. <clears throat> and Latin America is pretty well represented as well with Brazil and Argentina. And, well, Australia is well represented. The Africa and the Middle East, really, I, I personally think that probably Iran should be at the table. And uh, certainly one or two more countries in Africa should be at the table. But anyway, those are the decisions that are made. You kind of live with the decisions that are made, and they become institutionalized is what happens. And, you just, and then they continue on. And part of our recommendations kind of try to address that sort of thing. So that's kind of the background of the G20. In terms of looking, and it was really kind of disturbing in the beginning. The, you know, here we're holding out the... The Australian experience with the G20 uh, as, a, as a model of good pre-negotiation planning, the literature just beats Australia. The, the, the policy and academic literature was not very kind to the leadership of Australia, and I'll explain that in, as we proceed. But these are the issues that come out. There's four issues, transparency, representational legitimacy, accountability, and G20 identity. And I kind of looked at each one of those issues, and... You know, constantly the, you find in the literature people say, talking about transparency. And if you take a look at John Curtin, who John Curtin is also just a, 
a massive uh, presence in the G20. Some might say that the University of Toronto is, is kind of a quasi-secretariat of the G20 because of the center. Because there isn't a secretariat. They are like the storehouse of information for G20 activities. And John Curtin is the, the guy in charge of a, of a lot of that. And he wrote this massive book that you could use as a bookstop entitled uh, G20 Governance in a Globalized Society. And it has an outstanding index in the back of it. And listed in the index, of course, is transparency. And there's so many citations, book pages. And I read through every single citation in the back. I could only find one moment, and that was early on in the history of the bank governors and trade ministers, when there was a transparency question raised. Everybody talks about transparency, but show me the example. Give me the case. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to exist because John Curtin would know about it. Except for one small problem, which is how the members were selected. You got two people on the globe that selected these members, and they did it quietly, probably over a phone, couple of phone calls. And that lacked transparency. But in terms of the way the G20 operates today, I, I'm waiting for somebody to present to me a transparency case where there's a transparency problem. I didn't find it. I couldn't find it. In terms of representational legitimacy, well, it permanently excludes 173 countries. G20 outreach, and these are the engagement groups, this is one part of, of outreach, does not dismiss the legitimacy concerns. So rather than a tick, I, I give, it, give it a cross. In terms of accountability, there's a lot of people that talk about the accountability, but there's the, the G20 MAP system, which is the mutual assessment process, and that's a legitimate. They've, they've sat down and hired consultants that advise them on how to create systems of accountability. I personally think that they're managing account, uh, in an accountable way, except for the fact of the way they were selected. The only problem with accountability is probably people that complain about um, the G20 not being accountable probably are just disappointed with the kind of results they're producing, and so it, it drifts into that kind of discussion. The last issue is G20 identity. What should the G20 be? It's pretty obvious when we have a financial crisis that the G20 should be a global crisis committee. But what about when there isn't a financial crisis? And so there's this, the literature talks about it as a continuum. The global crisis steering committee, or excuse me, the global crisis committee or the global steering committee, uh, as if it's going to take on some of the responsibilities that the UN would traditionally take or some other international organizations would take. Well, the Australians did it a little bit differently, and it's kind of interesting what the Australians did, because it allowed us to look at issues around identity and what should the G20 be. So Australia sought a middle path. Rather than being the crisis committee, because there isn't currently a crisis during the Australian presidency, and rather than being the global steering committee, really what they said they wanted to be is the global economic steering committee. They said, lots of people complain that G20 isn't doing anything. One way to respond to that is to narrow the agenda. And that was a, a very legitimate approach. Let's narrow the agenda and say, we're not doing all those things. We're only, please evaluate us on this small list of things and let's return to our roots. We started out focused on economics and finance. Let's stay focused on economics and finance. And so the argument that was presented by the Australians, particularly the Lowry group, was the G20 members examine their own national economic policy and then G20 collectively coordinates policy actions among its members. So this argument actually addressed uh, legitimacy concerns. 
It's like, we're just all doing our own thing and then we're coordinating. It was an interesting argument. I think it was crafted by the Lowry um, Institute that, that put that, that, that did the thinking behind that um, idea. And so it addressed issues around accomplishing things, producing results, and addressed issues around uh, legitimacy that they were really calling themselves, they never called themselves the Global Economic Steering Committee. We arrived at that conclusion through the data. So in terms of what we're trying to do, the, our purpose was to try to build a framework for understanding how the Australian government created a G20 leader summit agenda, agenda building. And we found that, well, there's about eight systems that a G20 president has to manage, the, the bottom eight on that list. But there's some other things going on as well. First of all, Every, every summit host will have a political context. For example, why is Germany holding their summit in July? They have an election shortly thereafter, and they don't want the G20 summit to interfere with their election. Previous summits and the G20 agenda, you just don't create your own agenda. It, usually it comes from years and years of slowly building. You can add things, but there's things that carry over. The rationale for guiding agenda building, what you include, what you exclude. Australia had a clear a set of guidelines around that, and then organizing internally to manage external processes, and then these are the systems that need to be managed. The Trioka system, the ministerial and deputy ministerial meetings, the chair of the SHEPA tract, the chair of the finance tract, the working groups, the engagement groups, and then the many, many uh, engagement opportunities that a G20 president has. Because you're the G20, everybody wants to talk to you, and so it gives you great opportunity to do a whole range of things related to the G20 and related to your own national agenda. And then, of course, there's the other international organizations, the IMF, the OECD, the World Bank, the United Nations, the International Labor Organization. Uh, there's so many that have become involved. And all those have to be managed. So these are the systems that a G20 leader has to manage. And I've got slides on, on all these. This is kind of my data, moving into my data, based on our 18 years. So in terms of the Australian political context, you know, how sad that the Labour government worked so hard to become the president of the G20, only to turn it over to the Liberal government a couple of months later. And so there was a change of government several months later. I looked through all of the material that the Liberal Party presented to the public during their, their election. I found one document that mentions the G20 once. So the Liberal government showed up really unprepared to take on the role of president, and that was only a couple of months later from the point they were elected till they became president, December 1st, 2013. And so new prime minister, new treasurer, new shepherd, generally unprepared. They haven't thought through the issues. That, what happened then is it shifted, a lot, I think, a lot of power to the Lowry Institute, who was the employed consultant to manage G20 issues for the federal government. In terms of prior G20 summits, it establishes process mechanisms and structures that create the current summit agenda. A global growth strategies were inadequate. Infrastructure investment seemed to be a key. Member by, by member domestic reforms were required, which was quite controversial, but there was no consensus on how to proceed. These were the issues that had already emerged in prior summits that was handed to Australia to manage. The rationale guiding agenda building, and this comes right out of official government documents. Australia focused on promoting stronger economic growth, employment outcomes, building a resilient global economy, and there were stra detailed strategies associated with, with each of these three priorities. And these priorities were to guide every G20 meeting and the Leaders' Summit. 
So the G20 planning process examined a wide range of issues. You have all these different ministerial meetings occurring. You have all these different working groups going on. And they examined a wide range of issues. But when, when it came to this leaders' summit, there was an agreement amongst the Australian government that they would only focus on economic issues. So Australia had a rationale for including and excluding agenda items. In terms of organizing internally to manage external processes, the finance track was managed by the Department of Treasury, and they managed all financial issues. The SHEPA track was managed by the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, and they managed anything else. There were clear lines of authority, there were written roles, and then there was substantial integration between tracks. That came out of our interview notes. that They wrote roles for each department and the key roles within those departments, and then they did a lot of integrating between the two. In terms of the G20, 20 trioka system, as I mentioned, Russia, Australia, Turkey. The interview notes, we, we learned that the Australian government thought there was, it was quite useful that they had two partners that were quite diverse because the Australian government would come up with an idea and the first thing they would do before they would pass it around to all of the G20 members is they would pass it to Russia and Turkey. And of course, Russia and Turkey being so different than Australia, they came at it with a different perspective and it allowed Australia to rethink what it was they were doing. And so that served, they felt, as a real strength to rethink and reframe things by having a diversity of views in the Trioka. So the, most people focus on the Leaders' Summit, which is a two-day event, but that's not the only thing that the G20 president has to be concerned with. During 2014, there were five finance ministers and central bank governor meetings that the Australian government had to coordinate and plan for. There were deputy ministerial and bank governor meetings, seven deputy ministerial and bank governor meetings. There was one trade minister meeting, and then there was one labor and employment ministers meeting. That's bringing together the labor and employment ministers from 20 countries. And so Australia was responsible for not only organizing the leaders' summit, but organizing all those things as well, uh, which, which leads me to the significance of this particular paper. There isn't a paper that, that provides any national government with a roadmap on how to organize a leader's summit. And so I think this paper provides uh, that particular purpose, fills that gap. The Australians did something I've, I've never seen in the literature. It was absolutely brilliant. So you've got the ministerial meeting. Let's say you have the trade minister's meeting. And you know the ministers are going to meet in two weeks. And you've established the agenda. Then you, what you do is you go around to all the desks. So you go around to the, the North Asia desk and you pull out somebody to represent Japan and somebody to represent Korea. You go to the Latin American desk and you pull out somebody to represent Argentina and Brazil. These are all Australians, right? And you say, here's the agenda for the meeting in two weeks. Now, you bring them all together and let them argue from the perspective of the country they're representing. Absolutely brilliant. What do you have in the background? You have high-level DFAT officials that are taking notes. They're, they're watching the dynamics unfold, right? They're, they're seeing a preview to what might actually happen. And then, of course, they will be briefing the minister that chairs that session. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Now, of course, that's uh, imperfect, but it, it provides you with some insight as to how you can plan and prepare for a, a high-level meeting. In ministerial meetings, oftentimes the standard approach in international organizations is to stand up and you read your prepared text. And the Australians said, no, we're not doing that. We want you to come with ideas based on the agenda that we've distributed in advance, and we want analysis, debate, problem solving, and not scripted presentations. And that's what they insisted on doing, and they got that. And so then Australia linked every ministerial meeting to building the summit agenda. 
So ministerial and deputy ministerial meetings. In terms of the G20 Shepetrach, I think the Shepet is a Nepalese word that means it's, it's the person that leads the leader to the summit. That's where Shepet comes from. The Shepet is literally, in most cases, not all, is literally the personal appointee of the president or prime minister. Sometimes the friend is a trusted confidant of the president or prime minister. And so the finance track deals with economic matters and the shepherd track deals with everything else. And in the case of Australia, including trade and energy, because trade and energy were on the agenda. There were four shepherd meetings during 2014, plus two coordinated meetings. They had two meetings between the G20 shepherds and the finance and central bank governor deputies. Can you appreciate the amount of coordination to make all that possible? Is it really complex social planning to, to make those kind of things happen? There are working groups, and the working groups are, are really the expert groups that are based in these different tracks. And the group research is critical to ensure each stream feeds into the agenda building process. And then the G20 Shepas have many responsibilities, including preparing the summit communique. So in terms of the finance track, you've got... Since there isn't a secretariat, you rely on these international organizations, the IMF, the OECD, the World Bank, had conducted studies. These developing countries in the G20 were saying, we can't get any private funds for infrastructure investment. There's no money available. And the IMF, the OECD, and the World Bank did some research, and they said, actually, there's plenty of money available. The world is awash in money for infrastructure investment. The problem is these developing countries have a regulatory environment that creates perceived risk in the private sector. So that meant a domestic reform agenda, which was very controversial amongst the G20. It's one of the great successes of the Australian presidency, is to convince all G20 members to buy into the argument that we will reform our, our domestic economy, the regulation of our domestic economy, so that we minimize perceived risk in the private sector, so the private sector will loan infrastructure funds to developing countries. And through that, it took a lot of effort to get a number of countries to agree to that. Uh, and it wasn't just developing countries that were against it. There were some European countries that were against it as well. Once they achieved that, then they set a 2% G20 collective growth target. So the OECD, the IMF, and the World Bank had done studies that said, on a country-by-country -country basis, if you engage in these regulatory reforms, you can expect this kind of growth. They totaled all that up and they said, we can achieve 2% G20 collective growth targets. And so that, again, is a big success for the Australian presidency, I think. Moving on to the engagement groups, the, the G20 engagement groups are a response to representational legitimacy concerns. And so you've got the B20 or the Business 20. So business leaders from the 20 member countries will meet a number of times, conduct studies, produce recommendations, and those recommendations are passed to the G20 and may end up on the summit agenda. You've got the C20 or civil society, which is really not so much the G20 members, but a diverse range of international actors. You've got the L20 or Labor 20, the, the T20 or Academic and Think Tank 20. My contacts in Germany are responsible for the T20. The um, German Development Institute is co-chairing the T20 for their presidency. And then there's the Youth 20. These were the five engagement groups that were around when Australia was the presidency. During Turkey's presidency, they created the W20, or the Women 20, which was just waiting to be grabbed by somebody. I think that was really brilliant of Turkey. So 
a number of things that Australia had to do. First of all, these groups are, are producing a lot of work, but if they don't get the work done on a certain day, then it's not going to get rolled into the summit agenda. So they told all the G20 members, look, you're going to have to get this work done by July. The summit is in uh, November. If you don't have your instructions to us as to what you'd like to see happen by July, it's not going to be helpful to us. So that was one thing that they did. The other thing that the, the engagement groups that did is they made sure that they were representative of the G20 members. It wasn't just two or three countries that were meeting. And so they had to devote resources to make that happen, particularly, say, the Youth 20. So the Youth 20 might consist of two or three countries coming together. They wanted to make sure it represented the entire 20. In terms of G20 presidential global engagement, there's so many opportunities available to a G20 president. They appointed a kind of ambassador of the G20 whose responsibilities were to focus on non-G20 members to go around and talk to them, tell, explain to people. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the G20, so they were regularly engaged in providing seminars and workshops at, at high-level meetings in a whole range of countries, constantly talking to the media. You've got to devote human resources to that. Also, the Australian government cleverly appointed additional diplomats and ambassadors. Sometimes they embedded officials in governments. They would do that. It wasn't possible with Russia, you know, we couldn't embed somebody in the Russian government, but we, we appointed additional staff to the Australian embassy in Moscow, and we told the Russians, these are our G20 contacts. Right? And so that was really useful. In the case of Turkey, we embedded people in the Turkish government, is what we did. The Turkish people were open to that, so helping them prepare for the summit. So that's something else that the G20 president can do. There's just a whole range of engagement opportunities available to a G20 president, and it requires resources but it's, it's really only limited to the imagination of the G20 leader. So there's the agenda. 15th and 16th of November, 2014, the state of the global economy, which is really the IMF, the, the International Monetary Fund, is given like 60 minutes or 90 minutes uh, to, to go through that entire story. And that was followed by an evening reception. You know, the trade is discussed over dinner. Energy is talked about the next morning. Financial regulation and tax reform. It's talked about in the morning. Development, including national growth strategies and infrastructures, and then over lunch, where to next, followed by the G20 presidential press conference. That was the official agenda that was built after so many ministerial meetings and deputy ministerial meetings and working groups. That's what they arrived at. Notice all the things that aren't on the agenda. How was the agenda received? Well, read the academic and policy literature, and it was received with great controversy that it focused exclusively on the economy. It was very unappreciated by the policy academic community. The University of Toronto bunch was particularly critical. They said, I quote, it was the worst summit that was ever organized. When I read that, I was sick to my stomach because I thought, here I'm holding out the Australian experience as an example, and I've got... I mean, some of those people, they lack credibility, honestly. And I look specifically at their criteria. They went so far in criticizing the Australian government, they had to back off from that. You look at some of the other summits, and it was not the worst leader summit, but they made those claims the day after the summit occurred. Why? Where was public health, particularly the Ebola crisis? Where was climate change? Well, where was Tony Abbott? You know? Security threats in the Ukraine. Discussions on terrorism and traditional security. What did Australia say? Australia said, other international organizations are ma mandated with those responsibilities. We want to stay focused on economic issues and return to our roots. 
the Australian government was completely unprepared to manage the backlash to their back-to-basic economy. They should have had in place a whole public relations machine to manage the policy response and the academic response to the criticism that they received. And none of that occurred. They were just overrun, really. It was really just within days afterwards. And it's still coming out, the criticism. It serves as an interesting point in the process of the development of the G20. Australia presented an agenda that was unacceptable to not only the policy and academic community, but also to the members. The members want to talk about these other issues. Um, they want to talk about climate change. They want to talk about traditional security threats and terrorism and public health. They want to talk about those things. So, in a way, Australia, as a result, inadvertently, Australia, the, Australia's economy-focused agenda helped further define G20 identity. It's clearly going to be the global steering committee. And I think the response to Australia kind of created that kind of consensus. The G20 will be the global steering committee. And what does that mean? Well, that probably means that the G20 should consult more often with the United Nations, since like the United Nations has a piece of that role. G20 members in space expanded agenda. Also, at an organizational level, one of the things we observe that at an organizational level, there appears to be a relationship between agenda adoption and IO identity. I mean, an international organization is what it does. So take a look at its agenda. Whatever its agenda is, that's what it is. So G20 identity will be shaped by what it does, so identifying key summit tasks and issues is highly useful. So we began this study with the idea that this framework doesn't exist in the literature, and we wanted to define a summit pre-negotiation framework. We think this framework is relevant to any international organization that hosts a summit, particularly an international organization that doesn't have a uh, secretariat. We also think this pre-negotiation framework is relevant to regional associations. Regional associations very often have annually or biannually have a, a leader summit, and we think it's relevant to them as well. So first of all, and I won't go through the key issues, but I, this is a summary of what is a page and a half in my paper, a page and a half of framework. The chair in the political context, uh, the past and how it influences the present summit agenda, agenda building rationale, how do you include issues, how do you exclude issues, what's the objectives, what's the stated outcome, organizing internally, what suits the international organization, and what suits the chair. The authority system, so every international organization will have an authority system. In the case of the G20, it seems to be the trioka, and so you have to deal around issues around consultation, ministerial meetings, pre-analysis and formatting, managing multiple tracks, processes and coordinating, managing working groups, these are your experts, Engagement opportunities, allocating resources equals opportunities. A president has so many opportunities to do so many things, but you've got to allocate resources. You've got to think how to use those resources. And that means adding diplomats, assigning diplomats to do specific things. External support system. In the case of not having a secretary, you have to rely on international organizations as your think tanks. And then authoritative outsiders, and in this case we're talking about a range of academic and policy specialists that are going to react to what you do, and you need to be able to first engage them, and then have a media plan to manage them. We think that 11-point set of summit tasks with our key issues, and there's a whole range of, of key issues, that's just a summary and a sample. We think that's relevant to any summit chair. So in terms of some concluding thoughts... So the G20, I, I mean, there's a lot of people that would like to see the G20 disappear. They don't like the G20, but I kind of believe in it. Would you like to see these people stop meeting, these 20 leaders, for essentially a day and a half? That's a, a critical question to ask. I'd hate to see it happen. I think it's useful for, to bring those people together face to face. I think it's useful for 
Putin to sit down there with all those other leaders and, and let them confront him on some of the things he's doing. I think it's useful for uh, leaders to confront what the United States is doing and, and confront what Australia did as well in terms of ignoring climate change. So I think it's, it's worth pursuing. What will the G20 look like in 20 or 30 years is a useful question. Let's take a look at what the UN Security Council looks like, you know, 70 years later. And I think, well, really, maybe we need to think about the fact that global power is going to distribute in different ways, and it'll certainly shift. Insightful leadership might respond to predictable change. We know there's going to be change, and so what can they do? What kind of fair and transparent criteria and government system might permanently rotate members on and off the G20? Like, why don't we rotate? I don't, I don't know that we need to rotate all 20 on and off, but maybe, not immediately, but maybe in 20 years' time. Right now, they should be engaged in a process of consolidation. But maybe by 2028, it might be useful for five or seven years to rotate one member on and one member off. Well, those members that got rotated off, uh, maybe we can have a G20 alumni. They can continue to be involved in some form. I haven't found in the literature where anyone suggested the possibility of every year rotating a member on, rotating a member off. It seems pretty useful. I'd like to see some more countries from Africa on the G20. Uh, I'd like to see some more countries from the Middle East on the G20. So the real challenge is continuity and change is the long-term G20 challenge, honestly, in my judgment. So that's kind of where the paper is. If you want these slides, the Griffith Asia Institute has an APEC Study Center blog. I'm the deputy director of the APEC Study Center. And on my blog, there's the slides are sitting there posted, and you've got the slides there. If you want the paper, I guess I can email you the paper if you'd like to see it. And so there they are. There's everybody that can get in the picture. And you see, well, I don't know, take a look at that. You've got uh, our own prime minister. He's not sure where he's coming and going. Is he going to wave or not? I'm not sure. He didn't know what he was actually going. The Germans, our good German friend, she's standing her ground. She's not moving. She's not going anywhere, as is this, our friend from Saudi Arabia. The Argentine, our friend from Argentina, she's waving. She's saying goodbye for sure. <laughs> if you've followed what happened in Argentina lately. So there they are. They're just saying goodbye. Okay. That's pretty much what I have in terms of my presentation. Thanks so much for your attention. I look forward to hearing your questions. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.